Iran's anti-government protests extend into an eighth week as students rally around the country. VOA's Persian service explains why young people are leading calls for an end to Islamist theocracy. This new generation, basically, they do not share any of those values, not only with the government, but sometimes even with their parents. Plus, how will Israel's incoming prime minister respond to Iran's supply of deadly drones to Russia? We have analysis from the Atlantic Council. He will be addressing this issue of the danger of Iran, However, I also believe that Netanyahu will probably continue with uh, the policy of the current government. And later in the program, we'll tell you why Iran faces potential expulsion from a UN Commission on Women's Rights. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Iran. Good morning, I'm Michael Lippin in Washington. Iranian students have held more rallies demanding freedom and regime change in defiance of violent police crackdowns and threats of harsh prosecution by their Islamist rulers. Many have adopted a protest song called Baraye as their manifesto. Iranian singer Shervin Hajipur composed it from social media posts in which other Iranians stated what they were protesting for and because of. To find out how young Iranians got the courage to keep the protests going for an eighth week, I sat down in our studio with VOA Persians Ali Sajadi. Few different things uh, get all together. One, you heard about the incident happened to Mahsa, the young girl. That basically tricked that. Uh, but the fact is that they have no hope for future. You see, the new technology, the new communication technology led them to know about the other young people around the world. They know what freedom means. They know what uh, demands of the people, what, how people live, what people want to live, and they cannot ask for any of them. They are just under pressure from the families, from the government, from the, uh, the values of the government. This new generation, basically, they do not share any of those values, not only with the government, but sometimes even with their parents. They don't agree with that. They just want to be free like any other kids around the world. What do you think uh, about how the, the parents are reacting to what their kids are doing? I think they were, in the beginning, they, they were some kind of reluctant to do anything. But in recent weeks, uh, I see a lot of support, a lot of support of the parents, a lot of support of the uh, people on the street. Uh, even I saw some video that shows some officials uh, led them to basically give them place to escape from the special police. So they are gaining momentum. I think they are still not full-fledged uh, revolution, as some people say, but it, it is not something they can wrap it up, as the leader said. Well, what makes you feel like this wave of protest is different from before? Because the demands are different. They are not asking about one particular thing. It is not like 12 years ago, they are asking, where is my vote? There is way more than that 
in their list of demands. They want freedom and freedom in every single aspect of it because some people trying to reduce that demand to the hijab, to the dress code. That's not it. It is not only dress code. It's way more than that. As that manifesto, if you listen to it, it says we, we are fighting for an ordinary life. We want to be free. We want to be everything in the right place. And remember, this regime in last 40-some years did nothing for them. You know, not only for the young people or old people or for the rich people or poor people. They did nothing. They just pushed for values that people don't share with them. Not anymore. Even if 40 years ago people had shared those values, not anymore. This new generation entirely has different demands. Ali Sajadi, Managing Editor in the VOA Persian Service, thank you very much for being on Flashpoint Iran. Thank you very much for asking me. Americans rallying in support of Iran's protest movement got the attention of U.S. President Joe Biden at a campaign event in California on November 3rd. He responded to them by saying, Don't worry, we're going to free Iran. They're going to free themselves pretty soon. Was the president's pledge to free Iran a call for regime change? VOA White House Bureau Chief Patsy Witikoswara put that question to National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications John Kirby in an interview the next day. What he was signaling was our solidarity with the protesters in, in Iran. And he's been doing that from the outset, Patsy. I mean, right from the well of the UN, made it clear that we stand in solidarity with these Iranian protesters as they try to uh, fight for their for, for basic human rights and for what a woman can wear or not wear. Uh, the Iranian leadership uh, is uh, dealing with problems of its own making. Uh, but ultimately, uh, the, the future of Iran should belong to the Iranian people. So the first part of that statement, don't worry, we're going to free Iran, that's not a change in policy. Did the president misspeak? The president was speaking very plainly, uh, as he has, about how much we stand in solidarity with the Iranian protesters. Uh, But as I said, the future of Iran should belong to the Iranian people. Great. I'm going to continue with Iran. At this point, what do we know about what else Iran is doing for Russia uh, beyond sending drones? Have they sent surface-to-surface ballistic missiles, short-range ballistic missiles at this point? Are they still training personnel, Russian personnel in uh, Crimea? I don't have an update on uh, Iranian presence in Crimea. We know they were there to provide technical assistance and training for some of these drones that they provided the Russian military. Uh, We haven't seen any indication that they've transferred any other weapons or technology, for instance, surface-to-surface missiles, but we're watching this as best we can. The mere fact that Iran and Russia uh, are talking about the possibility for additional capabilities, be they UAVs or or or, or be they missiles, just shows you how much more isolated both countries are from the rest of the international community. And it shows you how desperate Mr. Putin's becoming with his own defense industrial base, that he has to rely on outside suppliers like Iran and now potentially North Korea. That was National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby speaking with VOA's Patsy Witikoswara. Iran's drone deliveries to Russia also have been causing concern in Israel, which Iran's rulers regard as their top regional enemy. 
With Benjamin Netanyahu expected to return to the post of Israeli Prime Minister in the coming weeks, I asked Atlantic Council analyst Ksenia Svetlova, a former Israeli lawmaker, how Netanyahu is likely to handle the drone issue. Well, uh, as we all know, for years, the Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, then uh, as a leader of the opposition as well in the last year, he always stressed the importance of combating Iran and its malign uh, influence uh, in the Middle East specifically, its nuclear program, and its very open anti-Jewish and anti-Israel sentiment. Um, So I believe that uh, he will be addressing this issue of the danger of Iran. However, I also believe that Netanyahu will probably continue with uh, the policy of the current government, uh, Lapid-led government, of uh, refraining from supplying weapons to Ukraine due to the increasing uh, warnings of uh, Russia that just uh, remind us, reminded us today uh, that uh, if Israel were to supply weapons to Ukraine, it will uh, have to respond uh, in some kind of way to this, possibly in Syria, but perhaps also through you know other uh, venues. How credible do you think are the Russian warnings to Israel to not get involved militarily with Ukraine to help it defend against these Iranian-supplied weapons? Well, I will have to tell you that in Israel, the majority of uh, experts, politicians, uh, military uh, leaders, and so on, uh, believe that Russia indeed has powerful tools, and uh, it uh, will be able to both uh, not perhaps prevent completely the Israeli sorties to Syria, but interrupt Israel, freedom of operations in Syria, Uh, But there are, of course, also other, you know, uh, possibilities of pressure uh, against Israel uh, that are not uh, regional, you know. So this is the the question of the future of the Russian Jewry, for example, Uh, the future of the Jewish agency, uh, you know, that uh, there is an ongoing court hearing uh, on the Jewish agency and Israel is very keen on a continue of uh, its separations uh, in Moscow. Uh, so, you know, for example, these uh, important organizations uh, might close its doors. Uh, so uh, there are different ways of pressuring Israel. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, unlike Turkey, that has also some leverage on Russia, uh, Israel doesn't have much leverage uh, on Russia today. You know, so uh, in this regard, we know that Russia moved uh, some of its S-300 systems out of Syria to Ukraine, but it still has uh, S-400 uh, station in Syria. And uh, this is basically enough to make the life of the Israeli pilots that are leading the operations uh, in Syria uh, a lot more difficult and jeopardize perhaps these operations uh, entirely. In terms of uh, the incoming Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, he did actually retweet a Twitter post from the Ukrainian president, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, in which uh, Zelensky said that Israel and Ukraine face common challenges that now require effective cooperation. And Zelensky hopes to open a new page in cooperation with the next Israeli government. So what kind of signal is Netanyahu sending by retweeting that sentiment from Zelensky? Well, as I said, you know, uh, Netanyahu doesn't have anything against cooperation in general, against Iran, especially when it serves, uh, you know, the Israeli cause. So, you know, there is cooperation, it's a wide term, and, uh, you know, uh, each party might interpret it in different ways. I think that, uh, you know, as an experienced and seasoned politician, uh, he would try to 
you know, make happy both uh, sides, both Ukraine uh, and Russia. I don't know if he will succeed in this because obviously the Ukrainians are very open about their needs in combating uh, Russia and uh, also the Iranian weapons that are being supplied by Tehran that are killing the Ukrainian citizens. For now, you know, Netanyahu is still enjoying the grace uh, of this, uh, you know, the few first day in the job. He's not formally yet on the job, but it might happen very soon. But uh, this grace will be over in no time uh, after, you know, he will be sworn as a prime minister. And and then the Ukrainians will be demanding from him uh, to start sending weapons uh, to Ukraine. We do not know what will he do. I know that uh, he was extremely quiet uh, about Ukraine during the eight months of war so far. And um, he also was not very critical of the Bennett Lapid government uh, on Russia and Ukraine, meaning that he perhaps and most probably supports this very cautious policy and intends to follow suit. You know, so this does not uh, include, you know, selling weapons uh, to Ukraine. Ksenia Svetlova, non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, speaking to us from Modi'in in Israel. Thank you very much for being with us on Flashpoint Iran. Thank you very much. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Iran. I'm Michael Lippin. The United States says it will lead an effort to remove Iran from the UN Commission on the Status of Women, a body to which Tehran was elected last year before starting its membership in March. Rights activist Hillel Neuer is executive director of UN Watch and has campaigned for Iran's expulsion from the commission. I asked him how Tehran has used its commission membership to its advantage. At various points, they've taken the floor to uh, trumpet their membership but nothing meaningful yet because actually the first major session that they will participate in will be in in 2023. So so we we haven't seen their direct uses of it, but there have been a number of photo ops and speeches given at different places. Uh, So it it has served Iranian propaganda. Well, you did welcome uh, U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris's announcement that the U.S. is going to lead an effort to expel Iran from the commission. How do you compare the U.S. position on Iran now to the rhetoric from the Biden administration on this issue when Iran was first elected? Well, look, when they were asked to comment on this outrage, their response was feeble. It began as, as kind of indirect, saying that you know sometimes some countries get elected to these bodies and they don't deserve to. And uh, it was nothing like what we had seen in previous years. In 2014, for example, uh, Samantha Power had had called Iran's election to a similar body an outrage. And suddenly last year, in 2021, there was a notable hesitancy by the U.S. government to condemn Iran's election. And it seemed to be connected with the kind of U.S. policy of appeasement in connection with the nuclear negotiations. So I, I, I welcome, we're seeing a dramatic change. The announcement by Kamala Harris, the statements made since then by the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Those are a dramatic change in in tone and in approach. And it's long overdue. We we welcome it. So what are the steps required to remove a country like Iran as a member of this commission? These are not prescribed. The United Nations, in its early years in the 1940s, um, created what are called functional commissions. These are overseen by the ECOSOC, which is a 
54-nation body, the Economic and Social Council. And they, there is a procedure there for electing countries. There is no prescribed procedure for removing countries, removing member states from a functional commission, such as the Commission on the Status of Women. But having said that, we, we determine that legally the body that elects a country, that has the powers necessary to elect a country, can, by definition, uh, has the power to remove a country. And so we drafted a resolution, which is very clear. The, the resolution that we drafted contemplates that ECOSOC decides to terminate the membership of the Islamic Republic of Iran. And legally, I cannot see how any resolution passed by a majority of those present and voting of ECOSOC to terminate the membership of Iran, how that could not be immediately effective. Well, what can you share with us about the feedback so far to your draft resolution? Well, it, it came up immediately. We had certain calls of support from the Canadian foreign minister, from the Canadian deputy prime minister, from New Zealand's prime minister. But in terms of leading the effort, America basically said that they would lead the efforts. So they didn't speak to our particular resolution, but it's the only one currently that's on the table. Uh, of course, we, we welcome any amendments or any other version that achieve the effect of it. The precise wording is immaterial. It's the result that we want. The Iranian regime is misogynistic. It uh, crushes women's rights. It crushes girls' rights. They absolutely cannot remain on the Women's Rights Commission. Well, just to wrap up here, how soon do you think we can expect to see action on your draft or any other draft resolution? That is a good question. I would like to see it happen certainly within the next month. I think if waiting beyond that it sends the wrong message. It sends the message that the international community is not serious. The United States has said that every day that Iran remains on this commission, it detracts from its um, credibility. We agree with that. We think that's been the case since, since the um, ignominious election in April 2021. And so I, I would urge the United States to act uh, expeditiously and to introduce the resolution. We, we predict that the vote will be something like 28 to 11 uh, as, 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 with, with others abstaining. That, um, you know, just, just based on how countries have voted on other resolutions on Iran at the United Nations. If we look at those the ECOSOC members, that's, that's the kind of result we can expect. And that would be enough? Oh, yes. The, the, the uh, re resolutions are adopted by a majority of those present and voting. So e even if the resolution were adopted by you know, 10 countries to nine and all the rest abstaining, uh, it would pass. Hillel Neuer, international human rights lawyer and executive director of Geneva-based NGO UN Watch, thank you very much for being with us uh, from Montreal, Canada on Flashpoint Iran. My pleasure. Iran has intensified its efforts to block Western news broadcasts from reaching its people since the protests began in September. I spoke with Simon Spanswick, CEO of the Association for International Broadcasting, to find out what channels have been affected by the Iranian jamming. It seems to be most of the major Western international broadcasters that operate services in the Persian or Farsi language. The BBC has been affected, BBC News Persian, for many years. Uh, Iran International, which is another station that broadcasts to Iran from the United Kingdom, is affected. Uh, there's been effects on the 
radio services as well of the BBC and other broadcasters such as um, Deutsche Welle and RFI and indeed the uh, Voice of America. Do you have any idea if uh, viewers in Iran are still able to somehow find these broadcasts despite the jamming? Yes, they are, because the major satellite operators, such as UTELSAT, which carries a huge amount of programming uh, across Europe and the Middle East, uh, has done some clever stuff to move the transponders, the frequency that's used by these broadcasters, to other transponders that are slightly more robust in terms of um, their susceptibility to uh, interference. One of the one of the big issues is, of jamming satellite television is that it doesn't just affect the uh, channel that a nation state is trying to jam, but all the others that are carried on the same frequency, um, which has an impact on commercial operators. You know, it could be an entertainment channel that's alongside something like the BBC or VOA um, that is wiped out as well. And satellite operators have got um, quite savvy over the last few years in terms of both tracing the source of jamming uh, and then reacting to the the um, problem by, as I say, moving to different frequencies, um, using different encoding techniques that are more robust uh, against jamming, and as well, raising the issue with the International Telecommunications Union that is the UN body that regulates radio, television, all the world's um, frequencies. Um, because this is against the internationally agreed radio regulations that govern the use of the radio frequency spectrum. How are the folks in Iran able to realize that you know they can see a program or a channel on, on a different uh, frequency? Do they have to do anything at all? They would have to retune their satellite receiving box. Um, one of the things you've got to remember is that unlike uh, here in the West where um, we, we take for granted the fact we switch on our televisions and uh, whether it's coming through cable or satellite, the program's always in the same place and the system um, automatically sort of catches up if a, if a broadcaster moves frequency. Uh, in places, uh, other parts of the world, in the Middle East, in Africa, in Asia, um, things get moved around. And so users are more adept, if you like, at searching out what they want um, and finding when something has moved. There's also a huge social uh, media um, WhatsApp type groups going on saying that a broadcaster has moved from frequency X to frequency Y. Um, so that the information gets around um, in the country quite quickly. Well, you referenced um ITU regulations against this kind of jamming activity. What is uh, the Association for International Broadcasting doing uh, to try to get Iran you know, into line with these regulations? Because it is an ITU member. It is. We, we have raised the issue with Ofcom, uh, which is the media regulator that looks after everything from uh, program content through to uh, international frequency coordination here in the UK. We're in touch with them, uh, making sure they know what uh, the issues are affecting our members. And we're also uh, ensuring that other national administrations from our member countries uh, know that there is this 
important issue that um, needs to be addressed in the correct international fora. Um, the problem is that, um, as has been proved over the years, when these issues are raised, uh, precious little actually happens because uh, there are no teeth really to the radio regulations. Uh, there never have been. Um, so it's really just a question of raising the diplomatic pressure um, and ensuring that multiple national administrations make representations to the Iranian government protesting about the um, misuse, the deliberate harmful interference to the world's radio frequency spectrum. Well, Simon Spanswick, Chief Executive of the Association for International Broadcasting, speaking to us from London. Thank you very much for joining us on Flashpoint Iran. It's been a pleasure. That's all for this week's program. You can find more VOA coverage of Iran 24 hours a day on our website, voanews.com, and on our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm Michael Lippin. On behalf of the Flashpoint Iran team, we appreciate you joining us and hope you can do the same next week. We'll be right back.